0: It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Welcome to episode 311 of the Simply Fit podcast. We all know that health and well-being isn't just about your training and nutrition. Your mindset and mental state is a big part of the equation. Remaining injury-free is a big part, along with your sleep and ability to maintain your commitments long-term. And with that being said, today I want to bring in the help of five experts on how we can improve our health from a very complete and holistic perspective. In this episode, you can expect to learn how to implement the principles of intuitive eating to set you up for long-term nutrition success, whether you really need eight hours of sleep and if trying to achieve this is causing more harm than good, and finally, how to deal with negative emotions, which is exactly where we're going to start today. I spoke with Dr. Tim Sharp, aka Dr. Happy, and asked him exactly how we're supposed to navigate the negative emotions that we encounter, and here's what he had to say.
1: Again, I mean, as you hinted at the early part of your question, you know, I don't even really like to call them negative emotions. Because it implies they're bad and, and they're not all bad. They, they can be problematic if they become too pervasive and too overwhelming. So I'm not I guess just the caveat is I'm not suggesting that, you know, major depressive disorder, that serious psychological illness is good. It's it's not. You know, when it gets to that level, we need to uh, you know, by, by definition, it's problematic and we need to help those people get help. But there are normal, uh, you know, normal levels. These things happen on a continuum, and there's a Uh, for most of us those unpleasant emotions are normal uh, and a normal part of life and even a healthy and appropriate part of life now so the simplest one to explain i suppose is fear and anxiety and then we can maybe look at some of the other ones but if you think about it one of the simplest ways to understand is to think about it from an evolutionary perspective and there are you know there's a whole branch of psychology called evolutionary psychology which personally i find fascinating um and it, it very simple is it's about understanding us humans today based on our History, you know, the, 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 we are who we are today um, because of what we've been over thousands upon thousands of years. And anyway, so if you think back, well, not even thousands of years, just it, but even hundreds of years, I suppose, fear and anxiety were really, really important. We would not have survived as a species without fear and anxiety. We would have walked up and patted that lion. We would have gone too close to the fire or we would have gone too close to the cliff edge, you know. So fear and anxiety actually, uh, it's like a, a protective mechanism, it protects us from. Doing dangerous things, from taking unnecessary risks, and I think so. That's pro- that's one of the easiest ones to understand. Most people can understand that. If, that if, or another way of saying, you know, if you're a parent, uh, imagine if you had a child that had no fear or anxiety. They probably wouldn't last very long. It would be actually be really dangerous. We want our children to have a certain amount, not too much, but you know, an appropriate level of fear and anxiety. So, so that's probably the easiest to understand. We can see if we think about it like that. That fear and anxiety to a point in context is actually a healthy thing. But so too is sadness and grief. I mean, sadness, for example, and even anger to some extent, it, it shows we care. You know, it's a sign that we care about things, that we care about people, and so when we, you know, when we're grieving, for example, it's ah, it's an indication of love in a way. I mean, it can be very painful and unpleasant, but it shows that we love that person or that we love that, um, and 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 it also often connects us with others. If you think about grief or grieving, we're almost always grieving in the context of other family members, other under uh, other relationships. So, so again, the bottom line is these things are normal. They are appropriate. They serve a useful purpose. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is they often connect us with other people. We we want to try and allow them to connect us with other people. Uh, the hard thing is that for many of us when we experience unpleasant emotions, we often withdraw. But if we can find a way to work against that, I suppose, and this is a big one, I suppose, this is one of my favourite topics of recent years, I guess, one of the most important things for psychological well-being is to become more comfortable with discomfort. And I think too often we try to repress or suppress discomfort through things like drugs and alcohol. You know, alcohol is a common one. Well, I'm really stressed what I do. I'll have a glass of wine. Now, you know, I'm not opposed to a glass of wine or a beer or whatever it might be, but using that on a regular basis to suppress or to calm unpleasant emotions is not great for our psychological health and well-being. But there are other things that many of us do. I mean, many of us, you know, we scroll through social media or binge flicks Uh, You know, binge Netflix so that we don't have to feel, and we don't. And but what we need to do, or what I would encourage people to think about doing a bit more of, is allowing ourselves to feel even those unpleasant emotions, because the more you can do that, the less power they have over you, Um, and the more you can free yourself up to then experience some of the more positive emotions.
0: Mm, But I can imagine that sounds pretty overwhelming to let all the stresses in your life start to actually have a voice. And I know that you mentioned that it almost has that. Opposite effect in which they have less power. But I can imagine if we begin engaging in those, especially if we haven't had experience, I definitely can relate to that, that it will almost seem very all encompassing and very real compared to before. It's nice to keep it in this little package box or somewhere away from where I don't have to deal with it. So I wonder how we can get to a place where we're willing to face up to them.
1: Oh, look, 100%. And, and look, you've, you've made a couple of really important points there that I'll pick up on. So you're 100% right. It, it can seem very overwhelming. It is difficult. By definition, it's unpleasant. It's, it's distressing. But um, I think inadvertently you used a couple of words in there that I think almost give the answer. You said, you know, we're facing all of this. You don't have to face it all at once. In fact, I'd encourage people not to face it all at once. If you do have a lot of distress in your life or if you've been suppressing these things for a long time, just start small. Start with small things, with small, less intense emotions, with smaller problems and build up from there. And, again, I, I often use the sort of physical fitness metaphor um, because you know, it's nice and tangible. Most of us understand it. But it's the same thing as saying that if I wanted to get fitter and stronger, if I wanted to train to run a marathon, you know, I, mean, I wouldn't go out tomorrow and run 42 kilometres. Or I wouldn't, or or if I did, I'd probably be in bed for the next month, you know, (laughs) or you wouldn't just go to the gym and start throwing around really, really heavy weights, you know, any sensible person would understand that if I wanted to get better, I'd start off just walking around the block, or maybe jogging, you know, slow jogging for a kilometer, Um, maybe going to the gym and lifting some light weights just a few times, and then you build up from there, you know, and I think that makes sense to most people. And that's, you know, that sort of slow and gradual approach, whether it's Lifting weights or running or riding your bike or whatever it might be. Over the long term, that's far more likely to be effective and you're far more, far, far less likely to have any injuries. Well, it's the same in the psychological realm. You know, you don't have to throw yourself in the deep end. In fact, I'd encourage you not to throw yourself in the deep end. Just start small with some you know, with a small stressor, with a, a mild, unpleasant emotion. And then as you build up your skills, quote unquote, you can work your way towards some of the more serious or more intense ones.
0: I hope that now you're one step closer to navigating those negative emotions and I now want to turn our attention to nutrition. Intuitive eating, which is essentially being able to eat based on your intuition, is an approach where there aren't really any rules, restrictions, and you can do this whilst maintaining great body composition and health. In many ways, it's the gold standard of nutrition. And when I spoke to nutritionist Jeff Ash, I asked him how we can start implementing these principles for more nutritional success.
2: So that's also one of the things that's important to understand with the intuitive eating principles, this, this framework. It's not a weight loss approach. So some of those principles may make a bit more sense now. It's like oh, okay, so I'm not intentionally trying to get into a calorie deficit. Okay, that makes more sense now about honoring my hunger, eating for satisfaction, those kinds of things. So that's where a lot of the misunderstandings of intuitive eating comes in is people thinking, well, you can't lose weight on this. That's not what it's for. It's for improving your relationship with food. And that is a hard thing to sell people because even if they're tired of dieting and even if they know they're going to regain it and possibly even gain more, I've had people acknowledge that. I know I'm going to regain it. I may even gain more, but I really want to be the size at this event or this wedding or for this beach, you know, this beach vacation or whatever. And it's really unfortunate that our culture and our society has made us so fearful of being in a little bit bigger body or even a much bigger body that we would go to those extremes. But basically with this approach, it helps you to get into the body that's right for you. And Ellen Satter, who I mentioned earlier with the child nutrition, she has an approach called eating competence, and she incorporates a a bit more structure into hers, which I actually kind of bring over into intuitive eating too. I like the idea of structured meal times and snack times and having that consistency where intuitive eating proper, that's not really part of the framework, but I like to incorporate that. I find that clients really benefit from including those that structure in there can help them regulate their appetite over the course of the day. But one of the things that Ellen Satter talks about that I like in, in her weight neutral approach is that often the issues that we have with our body weight, well, there there is certainly a genetic factor. You know, we're, we're genetically predisposed to be different sizes and shapes and different distributions of fat and muscle. And that's an important thing that we have to acknowledge is that I can't look like you, you can't look like me, no matter what you do to, we could train exactly the same and we're going to look different. But at the same time, there are disruptions in life that can occur that cause our body weight to fluctuate up and down. So we may have a disruption that has occurred and that's why we gained X number of pounds over the course of the last two years. Well, through this process of intuitive eating, we often identify those disruptions and then we can address the disruption And with the idea that once we get the disruption dealt with, we get the relationship with food dealt with, then our body is going to shift to wherever it's going to be most comfortable. Uh, You may be familiar with set weight theory and settling point theory, This, this range that our bodies tend to just sort of hang out in naturally if we don't have disruptions where either super emotional times where we're kind of mindlessly eating a lot or less and we end up losing a lot of weight, maybe a death in the family and we just aren't eating like we should. So identifying these disruptions can be really helpful. So we're basically we're approaching it from the perspective of let's see what we can do about all of these things that are amiss in your relationship with food and in your health but without focusing on weight loss as that measure of success. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, if we don't lose weight but we get all these other things in order, then at least we're going to be feeling better. Our health will be better. And if we tried to get down lower and we're going to bounce back up anyway, is that going to be beneficial to us? mentally and physically
0: next i want to move on to something that holds many of us back which is injuries you've probably been in a great flow of your training and all of a sudden an injury comes out of nowhere and it throws you off entirely so when i spoke to physiotherapist tommy de jersey i asked him how we can remain injury free even whilst having ambitious goals within our training and here's what he recommended that we do
3: load management man Load management, load management, load management. Typically, the vast majority of like non-traumatic, so like you know, like fall, motor vehicle accident, you know, sporting injury, like with contact or whatever. The majority of like a traumatic or incidents that pop up in the absence of trauma, a large majority of them are load load based, right? You know, oh, I'm going to run a 10k in four weeks, so I go out and do a 4k run today because four is almost 10, and then if I do a couple more k's each week, but by 10k's. I'll be right when if we just like plan for that and done a 10-week prep and done an extra kilometer a week, would we maybe have been okay? Uh, where we see sudden really steep spikes in load, often in the weeks following that, we have things pop up. If you look at a lot of elite sporting teams, they will manage the very high-speed meters, so like how much like super high-intensity running, lifting, training their athletes are doing and actually deload athletes for certain sessions so that we can keep a really clear lid on how much total training volume they're doing. Your PT should be doing that for you, but in a less scientific way. You don't you don't need you don't need to wear a GPS tracker to walk around the office at work because you're just you're not you're not trying that hard. But in the gym, you know, you can't be testing every week. You can't be pushing your 5K time trial as a runner every week. There needs to be Really high quality, low intensity work, and maybe slightly less high quality, but really high intensity work. And the middle needs to be filled as well. If it's all high intensity all the time, or it goes from a period of not much intensity to like really, really, really hard training at a load and a level you've never done before, they're probably like the biggest modifiable flags. That and recovery, right? Like everybody's underslept, a whole sake of people won't be eating enough for in Australia from now, it's the end of September into summer. High alcohol intake, high work stress, low sleep, you know, all those things are going to contribute. That and load management for me are the big ones, big modifiables. And if
0: someone turns around and says, Well, you know, I really want to get this result. So I want to do four sessions a week. I want to do six spin sessions as well. And I wanna then go on my ten K at the weekend, how do I manage to continue to achieve my results, but still keep in line the amount of load that I'm putting through my body?
3: Yeah, sweet. So um, a question I like to ask is, uh, like, is this a race? Are we in a rush? If we have a time-based goal, I want to run a marathon by X date. Unreal. Let's do everything we can to get you there, but let's set out your total weekly kilometers in a way that your graph, if we plot, you know, load and time is relatively smooth and doesn't go a little bit, little bit, little bit, whoops, shit, I'm running 42 kilometers this week, you know. Planning is a good thing, and then if it's not a race, right? If you want to be doing six spin sessions a week, four gym sessions plus you know your high intensity or whatever, do we have to add it all next week, or can we add a session a week, or a session every fortnight, or a session a month, and just slowly build until by slowly building, we actually you allow your body to adapt, right? It's like wearing a pair a new pair of shoes; they rub, then you don't wear them for a few days, and they rub again, but it's not as bad. And then, you know, over the course of a little while, your foot is fine. That's okay. If you wear the new pair of shoes for 10 hours on a night out, you're a bit pissed, you're not thinking about how much they rub, you get home, you take them off, there's blisters, your feet are cooked. It's not a good thing. A little bit of exposure, allow some time for adaptation. And then once adaptation has occurred, we can then increase how much we're exposing our bodies to. So less is more because we want to... I like to help my clients look at things in a long-term view long-term lens you can do 10 sessions next week but if you do that for the next 10 weeks how many sessions are you getting done in week 11 a conversation with a client i had the other day is we want you to average as much total training load as we can for the entirety of the year not for the next 12 weeks
0: the next expert i spoke to is nick little hales who has coached some of the world's best athletes on something that we all do which is sleep, of course. Although getting enough sleep seems very simple, it's a challenge that many of us face, especially when it comes to getting those eight hours. So when I spoke to Nick, I wanted to ask him how realistic it is to be sleeping eight hours, and is it a recommendation based on truth, or is it really just a myth? And here's what he told us.
4: Well, it's actually the title on the front of my book, which scared me a bit, because, you know, you're sort of making a big old statement here, because you ask anybody, you know, how many hours they try and get, and they'll come up with this number eight, Um, but they don't really know why it's just a number that rattles around and when you look at the human beings on the planet as I traveled around you go well how does that apply to people in the northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere or how does it apply to that to surgeons and nurses and pilots and also and parents with kids completely disrupting their sleep pattern so I thought well what it basically is is again tap it in your browser look at human sleep Cycles, And you will see that up until the electric light was developed around the 1930s, that human beings never, ever tried to sleep in one block nocturnally. They would be more synchronized with the rolling 24 hours because of their relationship with light, diminished light and dark. They would sleep in a polyphasic manner, which might be biphasic twice a day triphasic, three times a day, multiphasic, which could be six times a day, and crazy phasic, And you could apply those to how does a single-handed round-the-world sailor be at sea for three months and they can only sleep when these 10 pieces of criteria are in place to leave the deck and try to go into a sleep state. Even then, we'd only do it for 26 minutes or so because they have to go back and check now how do we do that you know how do we sometimes don't sleep at all because we're anxious or adrenaline or or worry or just excited and yet we still smash it the following day so it's kind of why is that so you sort of think well the monophasic approach which is get all of your eight hours sort of eight hours is 30 odd percent of 24 so there's no sort of argument against human beings need to have eight hours plus worth of recovery in a rolling 24-hour basis but it doesn't have to be focused specifically on the phase, fourth phase of the day nocturnal right so when you start to think of it like that you think well yeah I do have I am aware of siestas Um, now nobody's really going to sleep in that period but what they do is do different things between one and three right so they they work a little bit later or start a bit earlier. They're still in restaurants at one o'clock at night with their kids, and you go, "Wow, wow, wow!" So it is a myth because have you ever met anybody who gets eight hours solid sleep with no awakenings, no disturbance, three six five, never mind seven days? Nobody, all it is is we're allocating the time, but nobody's actually sleeping fully through that period even people who fall asleep really quickly and then the alarm goes off sort of eight hours later and they've got bed hair and everything and they just went well I slept all the way through but if you actually looked at it carefully most of that was in light sleep so they still feel unrefreshed so it's kind of it's kind of I think when you asked before about the question I mean everybody's got trackers and now trackers track sleep And, you go, wow, suddenly that's doing that now when we haven't even started the educational process. So you start thinking, well, wow, now I'm starting to look at actually what's happening. And whilst they're still guessing and still making a bit of a guess at what's happening, because it's not brainwave patterns, um, you still start thinking about, wow, deep sleep does not get revealed on my tracker from sort of three o'clock onwards. Why is that? I need to improve that. Nick, I want to get more deep sleep in the final hours before I go to sleep, not just in the early hours. Well, if you actually know that your brain will not go looking for deep sleep beyond two or three o'clock in the morning in a cycles basis, then that's why. And that's why a lot of people wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning, feel wide awake and can't get back to sleep and worry about it. So it's kind of once you shift you know, using that lovely word mindset to what it is and how it's revealed, you suddenly stop worrying about it. And a it's a wonderful place to get to when you, you start to think of it like that. So it is
0: a myth. So hopefully at this stage, you now know how to navigate negative emotions, how to begin intuitive eating, avoid and minimize injuries and sleep the right way and right amount for you. And now I want to finish off with something to empower you, which is how to become mentally tougher. When I brought on cycling coach Anthony Walsh, something I wanted to ask him was his take on society becoming soft due to our modern conveniences and our avoidances of facing challenges, both voluntarily and those that just come due to the nature of life. And here's what he had to say.
5: Yeah, I'm big on this on the podcast. I've been pushing this idea of do hard things, uh, do difficult tasks like we're in. Uh, we've engineered this society for ourselves where everything's too easy, you know, Te- rooms are perfectly lit at the perfect temperature uh, we're almost never excuse me boredom doesn't exist anymore it's like you're at a shop in a lineup and the the lineup's like 20 seconds long. It's like, okay, cool. I can watch two TikTok videos in 20 seconds. Like we've alleviated boredom. We've alleviated extremes of temperature. We've alleviated, you know, discomfort in the commute. Like our life is just too easy. And this has all happened in the last hundred years, post-industrial revolution. But again, if you zoom out and you look at the totality of the evolution of our species, the last hundred years is quite a small, part of that total evolution. Our ancestral bodies that we've inherited were not too well set up for the environment we now find ourselves in. Our ancestral bodies were designed to be exposed to extremes, to be exposed to difficult tasks. We're meant to lift heavy things. We're meant to go long periods without food. We're meant to you know, be exposed to lice. We're meant to have our feet on the ground. We're meant to get cold in the water. And it's when we do all these things they recharge us, I think, at like almost a like the, a level of our soul or a cellular level it sounds corny and cliche, but it's only when you start doing the stuff that you go, "Holy shit, it feels like I should be doing this like when I get into the sauna and I spend like a half an hour at fifty six fifty seven degrees like it's crap I don 't want to be in the sauna at fifty seven degrees the last ten minutes is like. Get me anywhere but this place right now. Like, I do not want to be here. But when you get out of the sauna and then you're chilling out that evening reading a book at room temperature, it's like, oh, my God, this feels amazing. Like, the breeze coming through the window, there's a different appreciation for it. So it's almost like doing hard things creates a space for enjoyment. And I found this on the bike anecdotally, and it's only when I have sit to journal and reflect on this stuff that I started kind of piecing together this hypothesis but days when I've been out on the bike, and it's, you know, I used to live in Toronto and I'd be out on the bike in minus four, minus five degrees. And it's like I have five hours to do, and I'm looking down, got like five hours in minus five. Like, what the hell? My water bottles are frozen into the cage. My hands are frozen. It's just totally miserable beyond comprehension. And then I come in from the ride, I have a shower, put on some warm clothes, get a duvet on the couch. Have a sandwich and some tea and watch Netflix. And it's like that Netflix show has never like been as good. That cup of tea has never tasted as good. If I just got up out of bed, play video games all day and then watch that Netflix show, it would be a totally different experience. So the lens just completely changes or the perspective on that changes. And that's something I've noticed over and over again. Like if I'm lucky enough to live beside the RC and I'll try and jump in most days into the cold RC. But when you get out of that and you have like a cup of tea or a coffee when you get out of there, it's like, oh my God, this is the nicest cup of tea I've ever had because you're shivering after it. So it's like doing hard things creates that space for enjoyment. Have you experienced that?
0: I have. And before I go into my experience, I want to ask you a question that I get a lot from, and it's mainly kickback, is that someone might look at you, Anthony, and say, well, you know, you're experiencing these challenges with your mother's health. You've got a lot on. Why make your life any harder when there's already challenges coming your way?
5: I don't think I'd describe it as harder. It's like, yeah, if you have ever fly in the airplane, they say, you know, in the case of an emergency, put your own mask on first. And, you know, I'm not a good person to be around unless I'm centred and this stuff centers me like if you know just me my mom my dad my sister and my mom's in hospital at the moment and my dad's you know he's he's retired and he doesn't have the mobility and stuff uh, that he used to so it's like okay step up be the man of the house and it's like well how do you be that well if i'm this like like fat shriveled up low libido low energy dude who's slithering around the place it's like well that's not what the man of the house is like it's you know it's square the shoulders make decisions you know have confidence have energy you know have like a resilience about you that you can take some hardships that you can take some hits and still keep moving forward and like it it creates a momentum like getting into the sea and shivering for 20 minutes like there's almost like a metaphor for that in life because it's like you get in there it's hard but you're still doing it anyway and it's like I've never accomplished anything in my life that's just been smooth. Like I'm on episode 520 on the podcast. It's like how many of those episodes were absolutely terrible? Like a lot, like quite a lot. How many times my microphone didn't work? How many times was I like hung over or sick or injured and crashed my bike, but still had to do the podcast anyway? Like, We need to move past adversity in life. You need to keep moving past it to get to anywhere that's worth getting to. I've never got to somewhere worth getting to without friction. So sitting in cold water gives me that resilience to move past friction. And I can take that down to other areas of my life and go, okay, well, this is a hard day I'm having, but it's not as hard as the time I crashed in Detroit and I had a collapsed lung, broke my shoulder you know, and had to drive six hours to the hospital in Toronto. That was a shit day. Now this is not, I have a headache. You know, it's not, it's not as bad as that day. And you can benchmark experiences against the other. But for people like, and I I look at friends who are like, you know, I don't want to pick on the real private school kids, but I look at some of my friends who came through private school and then they I had a brilliant guest on the podcast actually that answers this perfectly. I had Paddy Houlihan. He's a ex UFC fighter, came up with Conor McGregor. They were like homeboys back in the day. If you want to talk about like a vision, we'll get into the stories he's telling me about Conor McGregor and vision and manifesting, which are unbelievable. But he's from a really working class area, like as tough as you can imagine, like one of the most working class areas uh, in the country and probably one of the most working class areas in Europe. So he said in school, in the school he was in, you're in from an early age and it's like adversity straight away. It's like a kid coming over, like you're six years old. And he punches you in the face. Your nose is bloody. You're going home and to your parents, and you're like, I've got a bloody nose. And your dad's like, well, you know what you got to do? You got to fight him tomorrow. That's how you get rid of the bloody nose. He's like, it's kill or be killed in the environment he's in. He's like on the streets, in the school. So. I contrast the environment he was in to some of my friends who went to private school and then they went to sort of quite polished universities and then they're 25, 26 years old and they get in a fight in a nightclub. Somebody bumps into them. It's the first time in their life they've ever encountered this adversity and they get hit in the head by somebody and you're talking the next day and it's like their world has ended. They're like, I was attacked in a nightclub last night and it's like 25 years old and it's the first time they've ever fu- ever faced any adversity in their life and it's crippling for them. It's You know, they have, you know, fear of going back out to nightclubs again. They have, you know, social anxiety off the back of this. They have a distrust of people off the back of this because they haven't built that resilience. But you take someone like Paddy Hulan, it's just like, you know what, it's part of life. (laughs) I could take hits and it can keep me moving forward all day long. I've been doing it since I was a kid. And it's an extreme example, but it kind of illustrates that we can build a resilience. It's a learned skill and it's also a learned helplessness
0: on the far end of that. So team, I hope that helps you on your way to improve your health and well-being from a holistic and a complete standpoint as fundamentally, there's more to this journey than just following a meal plan and going to the gym. So that's everything from me today, team. Have an amazing week ahead. Take care and I'll speak to you all very, very soon. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts,